0: I sincerely hope that every single one of you have had a pleasant week this week, but you don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that not everyone has, right? There seems to be this counterbalance in life that if your week has been a really good one, someone on the other side of the planet has had the really bad day that you just got to skip out on today, and uh, as we look through the book of Ecclesiastes, there's, there's a um, very realistic perspective that it brings to life that says this world, is a, it's a beautiful place and we can enjoy the brisk weather as the, the weather begins to turn. It's not too cold, not too hot. It's kind of Goldilocks weather. But the world can also be pretty wearying. It, it can just leave you weary. And you can go from one challenge to another. Listen, I think a few weeks ago, If you watch the news, it was one hurricane after another, after another, and it just seemed like, was there even going to be a five-second timeout from all of the disaster and the heartache that we feel? And and the truth is that people who have lived through that are still living through it. It will be months and years. So just because you don't hear it on the news anymore doesn't mean that the disaster has passed. No, it's worse now, just the winds aren't as strong. As we look at Ecclesiastes, Solomon deals very candidly with this, not faithlessly. He he looks with realistic eyes, and he says, you know what? As a follower of God, yes, we believe in God's goodness. We believe that God is good all the time, but the world is not good all the time. God alone is good, and so he begins to look at life and to try to figure out what the meaning of life is. How do you really get fulfillment out of life, and so he looks to Uh, the realm of experience, and he finds that experience apart from God can really be an empty endeavor. It doesn't matter how much money you have, you can still be unhappy. It doesn't matter how much laughter is in your life, you can still be really sad. And so he says we can't have this pie-in-the-sky attitude that sticks our head in the sand and doesn't acknowledge the weariness. And really, I think uh, the word the Bible would use is the wickedness of life on earth. Last week, we had the opportunity not to look at the emptiness of experience, but the transitoriness of time. Do you know that time does not care what kind of day you're having? It doesn't. You, you can have a bad day and go, hey, maybe, maybe I've gotten my, my quota of, of bad experiences in for the week. You know what? Time doesn't care. And if something bad happened to you on Wednesday, time goes, hey, it's Thursday. I'm going to send something bad your way again. Time doesn't care. And it's just so fleeting that we can work all of our lives to find out that we've had our ladder leaned against the wrong wall. We get to the top and we go, this isn't where I thought I was supposed to end up. Solomon, in the first three chapters, has tried all of these experiments, looking at the realm of experience, thinking about how time marches on, and he realizes that all of his experience have failed to bring him the fulfillment that he's really looking at. And this morning, as we look at Ecclesiastes 3.16, through chapter 4, 16, we see him look at the world around him. He's looked on the inside to say, can, can, can riches and gold and women and parties and music and laughter bring me fulfillment on the inside? He's looked at time and goes, man, time just flies. And, and sometimes bad guys have good things happen to them and good guys have bad things happen to them. And time doesn't care. Now he looks at the world around him and what he sees doesn't impress him. It doesn't impress him. He... Uh, looks and sees, as you'll notice in your outline, uh, five vexing issues in his world. And my question to you will be, all right, if Solomon was so wise, do you see these same five things today? Now, it's important for us to note before we've even uh, read one verse of Scripture that Solomon is here not hypothesizing about the world. Uh, five times, chapter 3, verse 16, verse 22, chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 7, chapter 4, verse 15. He says, I have seen, I have seen, I have seen, I have seen. This is not hypothesis. This is real world observation. And the very first thing that he sees jumps out at at us in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 3. And the first thing he sees is that in a fallen world, in a world that is less than what God originally designed it to be, justice is a rarity. Justice is a rarity. Look at verses 16 and 17. Here's his famous phrase. I also observed, I've seen under the sun, that there is wickedness at the place of judgment, and there is wickedness at the place of righteousness. I said to myself, God will judge the righteous and the wicked since there is a time for every activity and every work. He transitions from the transitoriness of time to looking around and going, hey, let me just people watch for a little bit. And and what do I see? What would you see if you sat down at the local mall and just watched people? You'd see husbands treating their wives poorly. You'd see children disrespectful to their parents. You'd see people spending money that they can't afford to spend on stuff that's going to end up in a storage shed somewhere. There's all kinds of crazy things that are happening. But Solomon puts his hands to his eyes and he looks out and he sees injustice. Now, without getting too political or too contemporary, uh, there would be some folks in our country that would wave the flag and say, Hey, that's not a a new story. We're experiencing injustice today. And the surprise for us should not be that wickedness exists. But did you see in verse 16 where wickedness existed? Pay really close attention because you read through it so fast in English. He says, I looked and there was wickedness at the place of judgment. What's the place of judgment? The courthouse. And then he says, I looked again and there was wickedness where? At the place of righteousness. Where's the place of righteousness? The temple. And so the two institutions that are supposed to provide some measure, it's not God's justice, it's not perfect, but some measure of truthfulness and justice are as unjust and corrupt as the rest of the world. It doesn't really matter whether you're right or wrong, it matters how much money you have, or it matters who you know, or it matters you know, if you can call in a favor, or it matters if you've got you know, the, the fraternal order of police on the back of your car when you get pulled over. You know, it matters, what are your connections? Do you know somebody in the, the Qantas Club or the Rotary Club? And it should be surprising to us that in these places that are supposed to be vestiges, uh, reflections, if you will, of God's justice, that even there, there is corruption. Psalm 73 is a long reflection on a very pious Christian's observation of life, going, God, I went to church on Sunday. Did you forget? Cuz like it's Monday and things aren't working out real good for me and I went to church and my neighbor, he doesn't ever go to church and like he's rolling in it. I mean like he got a new car yesterday and now he got a now he got this this trailer to pull behind. He's got a fifth wheel and he's putting in a swimming pool all within 24 hours. What is going on? The unrighteous are being blessed and the righteous are dealing with the crud of life. There are ways sometimes that we talk about the Christian life where it sounds like if you're a good little Christian boy, you will always score the touchdown while Paul Pagan will fumble the ball every time he touches it. It's simply not true. Sometimes Johnny Christian fumbles. Sometimes, maybe even more times, Paul Pagan It's the one who gets his picture in the paper on Saturday morning from the game on Friday night. The hope that he adds here is what he says in verse 17. God will judge. Men may not judge well. We will always be stuck with an imperfect uh, justice system, but God will make it right. This is the first time God's judgment is mentioned in the book of Ecclesiastes. And he says, hey, listen, it doesn't matter in this context if you're a Jewish person God's going to judge the Jews and the non-Jews. Whether you acknowledge Him or not, you're still going to stand before Him. And I think that's a word that needs to be heard today. If you're a Christian or not, if you exist, you will stand before God and He will be the righteous, perfect, infallible judge. Not, don't apply the standard of corrupt judges that you might see here to God. No, they are a dim, poor reflection of God's perfect justice. He will make things right. He's just not going to do it right now. You might not see it. You might not see it. Have you ever been frustrated at the ungodly prospering? Has that happened to you? It happens to me. You know, I I sit there and I go, oh, you know, why does that happen? Why does that happen to to their kids? Why, Why do my kids have to deal with this? Has there ever been a time where you wish like God would just give people what they deserve? Be honest. Be be honest. You cannot lie in church. That's even worse. Have you ever wished that, like, God would give you what you deserve? Well, not you. Other people. Would He give bad people what they deserve? So, like, if somebody like blesses you out, and I don't know why, we call it when somebody like really rips you. We call that blessing you. But let's say somebody blesses you out with their tongue. Don't you wish, like, two hours later, like they go to lunch and they're eating lunch, and all of a sudden their tongue starts like dissolving? (laughs) you know whatever's going on do you wish for immediate justice you know that guy that cut you off as soon as he passes you there's a cop sitting behind a bush ready to pull him over be really careful what you wish for because guess what is going to be you tomorrow have you ever said something that you've regretted have you ever been in a hurry to, to get over and acted like the car wasn't really there, and, oh, I'm sorry, and you, you wave when you did what you did on... Per- Maybe that's just me. Uh, you, you know you're coming over, you wave to say thank you. Don't wish for immediate justice. We, we think we're smarter than God with the way the world's supposed to run, and friends, we're not. But it is some small consolation that when the bully comes up to you and tells you, don't you know, bro, nice guys, good guys finish last, you can always reply to him, yeah, but bad guys go to hell. Take that for what it's worth. <laughs> in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, he sees a second problem that vexes him. And it's this, that in a fallen world, he says that politics is pointless. In a fallen world, politics is pointless. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. He said, again, I observed all the acts of oppression being done under the sun. Look at the tears of those who are oppressed. And I tell you, I don't know that we do this. I'm going to stop reading for a second. Because I think we, we have a very sentimental, you know, when that, that, that commercial with uh, whoever it is, uh, Sandra McLaughlin that comes on about the beat up puppies, you know, we all feel bad for about 30 seconds. But then, like when you're sitting down to dinner, you ain't thinking about any beat up puppies anymore. But you know, when she's got the, the sentimental, slow music, you're like, oh, those poor puppies, we should do something about it. And then you seem to forget about it real quick. And when you see the commercial about um, children starving in Ethiopia, oh, you're moved for about 30 seconds. If you're not moved to do anything, then you're not really moved. You're just being sentimental. It's a problem. He says, look at the tears of those who are oppressed. They have no one to comfort them. Power is with those who oppress them. They have no one to comfort them. He looks around, and he doesn't just see injustice. Oh, well, things didn't go your way. He sees oppression. Now people are actively working against you. And following at the end of verse 3, Uh, it, It kind of rolls with what we've just seen about injustice. Those places where you are supposed to find justice at the court and the temple had become corrupt. So those who have power use it to oppress those who have none. He says it. He says, look at the tears. They have no one to comfort them. Power is with those who oppress. What happens when we elect someone to office? We're under the mistaken notion that they actually represent us. Do you feel represented? I don't. I mean, that's why it's hard for me when it comes to politics. There's nobody on either side of the aisle. Even though I may ideologically line up with one party more than another, there is no one that represents me. No one. There's no one that I I agree with, even 75%, when it comes to the most important social and ethical issues of the day. And the point is that people who get power even if they start off with the best of intentions, will eventually be corrupted by that power. They'll, they'll, they'll force everyone else into health care that's subpar, and it's not the kind of health care they'll ever have to have. They'll vote for recesses. Man, last time I had recess, I was in third grade. <laughs> oh, You, you don't... You don't, you, we're paying for you to represent us and do work, and you get a recess? All right, wow, that'd be nice. Um, I guess that's just for a few people. And here's what's even worse. What's even worse than the fact that they are oppressed is he says that their oppression is observable. He says, look, behold, look at the tears of the oppressed. And no one comes to help them. So it's not just the politicians. It's the everyday people who go, well, if I go help Tom then I may put a target on my back, and they may start oppressing me. And we live in a world that is apathetic, and it says that no one helps them despite their tears. Solomon even says it twice for emphasis. Look at their tears. Behold, no one helps them. The the, the people of the power, they are oppressing them, yet no one helps them. I want to be careful to draw a very fine line, because we should certainly, as followers of Christ, work for justice and work against oppression. We should also realize that there is no lasting change for good that will happen in this world apart from Jesus Christ. Here's the problem with, with, pick your movement, pick your movement. From the far left to the far right, from Antifa to religious, the moral majority, apart from Christ, there will be no utopia on earth where we are free from sin and injustice and oppression. There's one place where that will happen. It's called heaven. And there's one door through which you must enter. And his name is Jesus. And apart from that, there is no political... Are are we really going to fix the world? However long you think we've been here, we've not fixed it yet. And I love this. I want to say this gently because I used to be a younger man. I see these young people that are so fired up about fixing the world. And it would be a good idea if they would actually start making their bed. <laughs> Do your dishes. Here's a novel idea. Get a job. Get a job. You, you want to fix the world? Fix yourself. Because you are what is wrong with the world. It is so easy to like get on the bandwagon about stuff. And we're not doing anything in our own personal life to, to bring maybe a little slice of heaven in the order and the peace that we have in a world that is crazy. It's, it's nuts. It's so painful that Solomon says something that I think that we'll find rather shocking in verses 2 and 3. He, he goes on. He's talking about injustice. He talks about oppression. Verse 2, chapter 4. So I admired the dead who have already died more than the living who are still alive. But better than either of them is the one who has not yet existed, who has not seen, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. Why does he admire the dead? Because they don't have to deal with the oppression and the injustice that men afflict upon men. That is a terrible conclusion. He says even better yet is the one who's never been born, because he's never even tasted of it. The one who has died had to live through it, and now... His suffering under the sun is done. He may be in hell, but that's not under the sun. That's something else. It's the afterlife. But he says, it's even better than the one who has never been born and had to experience the weariness and wickedness of this world in the first place. He moves on to a third problem that he sees. And he says, In a fallen world, our work is wearying when it is energized by envy. Our work is wearying. It will tire you out. When it is energized by envy, jealousy. Neighbor's got that new truck in the yard. You're driving a 1982 Datsun pickup truck. Man, look at that thing. That truck costs more than my house. I could cash my life insurance policy. I still wouldn't be able to buy a tire for that thing. Man, that must be nice. Verse 4, he says, I saw that all labor and all skillful work is due to a man's jealousy of his friend. This too is futile and a pursuit of the wind. Solomon's actually dealing with two issues here. In verse 4, he says that every labor and every skill is a result of what? Rivalry. Rivalry. Now, in our modern day parlance, how do we talk about this? We talk about this as keeping up with the Joneses. Any Joneses here? Stop it. Like, like, reduce your lifestyle so like we can all catch up, you know? Like, stop pushing the lead so far. Make it a little bit easier on us. He says that everything is a result of Rivalry. Keeping up with the Joneses is probably more an affliction for those who are chasing after the American dream than any other people on earth. But it is an ancient problem. It is why we live in a cutthroat world. Dog eat dog, look out for number one. Why? Envious, jealous, looking out for number one. Got to get ahead of you. And I have to step on your back or your face to get above you. I'll do it. Have you ever had a friend? A co worker who knew that you were interested in maybe a promotion or a different assignment, and when you have the conversation, they don't admit that they're eyeing it too? And then lo and behold, there's an announcement made at work and your BFF got the job that you were talking to them about and they didn't even care enough about your friendship to even say, yeah, I'm kind of interested in that too. How do you feel? Betrayed? envious? Jealous? Look at verses 7 and 8. He goes on and he says, again, I saw futility under the sun. There is a person without a companion, without even a son or a brother. And though there is no end to all of his struggle, all of his work, his eyes are still not content with his riches. Who am I struggling for, he asks, in depriving myself from good? This too is futile and a miserable task. Why does he say that our work is wearying? He says it's wearying because we are so envious of others that we want more stuff, and we are so materialistic. We don't even stop and ask, 'Um, I can't take it with me, who am I leaving it for? The guy in the illustration here, it says he has no companion. He says he doesn't even have a son or a brother. It doesn't literally mean that he's an orphan or a single child. It just means that he's been so consumed with his work that he's allowed all of his human relationships to fall by the wayside. Man, I'm really glad that just happened 3,000 years ago, that that doesn't happen today anymore. Do you value things over people? It's a problem. Do you really think that materialism will make you happy? If you do, here's a suggestion. Go ahead and order your own flowers for your funeral because nobody else is going to bring them. You value things over people. Order your own flowers, because nobody's going to show up. You didn't care enough. All you cared about were things. So get FTD on the speed dial for when the doctor comes in with bad news. Number four, in verses 13 through 16 of chapter four, Solomon pessimistically points out that in a fallen world, popularity is passing. Popularity is passing. Passing. Look at verses 13 through 16. He says, Better is a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer pays attention to warnings. For he came from prison to be king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who move about under the sun follow that second youth who succeeds him. And there is no limit to all the people who were before them, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. This to you is futile and a pursuit of the wind. He tells a story. He says that there's a king who maybe started off good, but now he's, he's just, whether he's consumed by his own kingship, he just doesn't, he doesn't listen. He's not looking out for the, for the good. And then there's an upstart. There's a young man who's, who comes out of the gate ready to run the race, and everybody is enamored with him. And he says, guess what's going to happen? There's going to be people who don't follow him either eventually. People jump on the bandwagon, they get real excited, and then give it enough time, and he's not popular either. Why? And, and he's not just saying, like, you guys are going, like, I'm never going to be a king, I don't have to worry about this. That's not what he's talking about. He says, popularity is passing. You sell your soul for your 15 minutes of fame, congratulations, you got a whole lot of extra life to live beyond that 15 minutes. It's not worth it to sell your soul for 15 minutes of fame. And it kind of reminds us of another story about a really godly young man who was extraordinarily popular by the name of Joseph. He went from the poorhouse to the palace. He was forsaken by his brothers, sent into slavery as a slave, distinguished himself with his work, became second in command to one of the world's greatest empires in Egypt. And, and, And Joseph was given all kinds of status and power, and God blessed him. But then you'll remember the story in the book of Exodus when it starts off talking about the slavery of the Jewish people. It says, there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. Joseph was popular in his time, but given enough time, popularity is passing. It's passing. So here's my question for you. We've talked about five things. Four points, but five things. We've talked about injustice. We've talked about oppression. We've talked about uh, rivalry in materialism. We've talked about popularity being passing. Is Solomon a crazy old man, or have you seen this in your day and age too? People who sell out, and they don't care about justice. They, they oppress people that they have power over. They're so materialistic and so envious that they, they, they put all their eggs in that basket, or they're so focused on chasing for popularity that they don't end, that it's a dead-end game. Solomon's conclusion is that our wickedness is so wrong that we're like brutal beasts. Beasts. That's what he says. Go back to chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. And this is what he says. I said to myself, all of this stuff happens concerning people so that God may test them and that they may see for themselves that they are like animals. For the fate of people and the fate of animals is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. People have no advantage over animals since everything is futile. All are going to the same place. All come from dust and all return to dust. Who knows if the spirit of people rises upward and the spirit of animal goes, animals goes downward to the earth? God's test is to show us that left to our sinful way, we will devour everything around us. Yeah, I look at my dog. My dog doesn't really have any cares about life. He's certainly not worried about judgment. He's just worried about where's the sun going to be so I can, I can sleep in that shaft of sun when it comes into the house? And um, are you going to feed me and let me go out to go to the bathroom? I'm not concerned about his heritage. I'm not concerned about his legacy. Just concerned about here <laughs> and now. And he says that apart from considering eternity and apart from considering the judgment of God, we will be just the same life. And he makes some really big statements. He says, you know, ant men and animals are the same thing. Not exactly. His point is that as we were made from the dust, we will return to the dust. From an Old Testament perspective, he's not real sure what happens in the afterlife. We're so grateful that Jesus says, the one who believes in me, even though he dies, he will live. We, we know more than Solomon did in this issue. But he says, we cannot be like animals with no sense of right and wrong We cannot be like animals who don't anticipate judgment. We have to wrestle with these things because if we don't pay attention to it, we are like dumb animals. Now, I know some of y'all, when we talk about animals, like you you do not like Solomon now because like you think like your animal is like your child. Like you name him, he's in the will. Um, You have humanized your pet. While our culture has dehumanized human beings, it, it, it's amazing to me that, that people who have the same brain that I have can, can think that killing millions of human babies is, is like a debatable topic. But yet, you talk about their foo-foo. Don't mess with foo-foo, Fifi, whatever, Mr. Socks. We're, we're willing to humanize. A cat. And and Solomon's not here trying to answer the question whether all dogs go to heaven. No cats make it. Dogs, maybe. Um, He's not answering that question. He's just saying, this is not a compliment. He's saying we can be as dumb as animals if we don't consider our end. So here's the question. What do we do in this world? What do we do in this world? Like if if these are the facts of life, how do we work in such a wearying world? Well, he gives us uh, just t- two very important things for us to look at, the two passages of Scripture that we've skipped over and, and, and what we've looked at. And the first is that our, our reason for working must be more, uh, must be bigger than simply for ourselves. Our reason for working must be bigger than simply being for ourselves. Look at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 4. I love this. He gives a little, he gives a little um, proverb here after he just talks about the foolishness of, of laboring and uh, out of envy. He says, the fool folds his arm and consumes his own flesh. Better one handful with rest than two handfuls with effort in a pursuit of the wind. He says a couple things here. Notice the position of their hands. When we talk about our work, he says, you, can fold, your, you fold your hands, you'll end up eating your knuckles. Why? Because you can't live you're lazy. You don't work. You think everybody else is going to support you. He says, don't be a fool because the fool folds his arms and consumes his own flesh. It's not kind of pleasant to think about cannibalism. And then he talks about the guy who wants to get after and work with both hands. Like if it's getting, it's worth jumping. He gets it. And he says that it's chasing after wind. It's it's with effort and it's toy. He says, better than no hands or two hands is one hand with rest. Just knowing that God made you to work. Work can be a pleasurable thing. You can use your riches for the betterment of your family, uh, the betterment of the world. You can give to charitable causes. Those those are good reasons for working. Working not just to increase your bank account, but working knowing that God has given you the abilities that you use to be used for His glory and for the good of others. Not just to promote yourself. It's not just by yourself and for yourself. It is to be with God and for others. He says, secondly, that God has designed us to be a cooperative community. A cooperative community. One of the most loved passages in Ecclesiastes is found in chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. It says this, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their effort. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up But pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. The song is right. One is the loneliest number. And community is crucial. God God didn't save us to be individual Christians running around. He designed for us to be a part of his community, the church. And beyond just the idea of safety in numbers, to have a companion helps you fight against the envy and materialism that we see as such a vexing problem in the world. This passage states that work and safety and warmth and protection, but the list could go on. What are the other benefits of having a companion? Having a friend. There's friendship. There's companionship. There's a, 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 an emotional outlet. What else would you add to why community is important? The list could be long. So you you sit there and you go, okay, I get it. Don't be selfish and be in community. Isn't that what these two points are all about? But you argue this doesn't solve the problems of the world. You're right, it doesn't. And not being selfish and being in community isn't really intended to make all the problems of the world poof and disappear. Not being selfish, being in community, it does make the journey easier. It means that when you have hardship, you have somebody there to help you. It allows you to make small changes in the world around you. You grab your buddy and say, hey, let's go to Hope House and let's hand out food to people who have no food. Let's do it together. But we're not able to do away with sin. That doesn't mean that we're without hope. We have hope because Jesus, in his person, overcomes injustice and oppression and self-centeredness. I want you to hear this passage of Scripture. And we're close to being done. I know y'all are smelling that barbecue and chomping at the bit. Just a few minutes here. And perhaps the most important thing that I'm going to say in this entire message. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 21 and through 25. Listen to how Jesus is the answer for all of the problems that we've just talked about. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his footsteps. He did not commit sin, and there was no deceit found in his mouth. Yet when he was reviled... He didn't revile in return. When he was suffering, he did not threaten, but instead entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. For you have been healed by his wounds. You were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. What is the answer to the wearisome and worrisome world that is gone mad? It is Jesus. He rightly could have made much of himself. He was the king of creation, yet he humbled himself and genuinely lived for others. Who did he live for? For his father, but he also lived for you. To set you an example to purchase you back. He rejected popularity to be despised. The Bible says that he suffered innocently even though he's the only person to never have sinned or violated any person. He had some strong words on his lips. But he never sinned. He was condemned to death by the authorities of his age in what became the biggest mockery of justice and he suffered a grievous Death, again, not for anything that he had done, but for the sins of the world. The Bible says he didn't stay dead, he gloriously came back to life. He is the answer to the world's greatest problems, yet he never entrusted himself to the masses. He entrusted himself to a small group of men called disciples, not churchgoers, not pew sitters, not Christians, but disciples who he entrusted with his message to incarnate both his words and his deeds. And he knew that if those 12 men would truly live out the message of his gospel and the method of his gospel, that ultimately it would yield a transformation of the world. It would circle the globe. And while injustice would not disappear until humanity did, that the process of taking the gospel around the world would lever into existence a thing called the new heavens and the new earth where there's no longer any tear. There's no night and shadows for criminals to hide behind because Jesus is the light of our existence. So following Jesus is not going to make life rosy but it is going to give you a companion who the Bible says will stick closer than a brother. If you have a friend in Jesus, you still need other friends too because you need to be a friend as much as you need to have friends. But if you have a friend in Jesus, because of the work of Christ, you can do what Ecclesiastes 3.22 says. Ecclesiastes 3.22 says this, Chapter 4. Let's get to chapter 3. I have seen that there is nothing better than for a person to enjoy his activities because that is his reward. For who can enable him to see what will happen after he dies? You want to enjoy life? Give yourself to Christ. Pray with me, please. Father, I pray that in the midst of talking through this terrible laundry list of just bad things that happen, that you can help us to come to the end of all things and see what it is that we need to do. Yes, we need to work for, uh, for justice and against oppression. But Father, we have to understand the futility of our efforts if we don't do this in your name. The world will never ultimately bring lasting change because everything that we will put will be a band-aid upon the hemorrhaging of this world. But you, Father, take people who are your enemies... <laughs> and transform them and make them your allies. You send them out as missionaries. And apart from a change of heart, a a warm meal may just prolong the ultimate judgment that we will face before you eventually. So Father, today, help us to renew our efforts to live for your glory. Today, help us to understand what it means to turn our lives over to you, to place our faith in Christ. Thank you for not only giving us instruction, for giving us life in your name, in which we pray, amen.